Okay, y'all. Let me take a sip of wine. time is still on. Okay. Ain't I a Woman podcast. Ain't I a Voter episode. I'm really excited to get into this topic because I think we met over our mutual interest in discussing political issues. And you all stood out to me because y'all were Black women who were politically aware. Amen. We love to see it. I'm excited to hear more about what y'all's political perspectives are. We bonded over our Black feminist praxis and, you know, that being the foundation of our political educations, which was beautiful. But we don't talk a lot about electoral politics unless we drag in some candidate who is just particularly (laughs) outrageous. So I'm really excited to hear what y'all think about these issues and pathways forward in politics, especially for Black people. But before we get into all that, Peter, me, do you have a Dusty? I sure do have a Dusty. So our Dusty of the day is actually going to be His Excellency, who is the self-proclaimed <laughs> dictator. <laughs> the self-proclaimed dictator of a micronation in Nevada. A micronation is just basically a nation that's been self-proclaimed as such without recognition from anybody in the international community. It's just, this is my nation. So this particular micronation was born at a suburban house in Portland, Oregon in 1977. It would be Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) Would he happen to be Never mind. Pretty sure he's white, but (laughs) once she said Portland, I said, oh, he's white. He's white. So the micronation was born at a suburban house in Portland, Oregon in 1907. It was originally known as the Grand Republic of Voldstein. Ba appointed himself prime minister. That sounds like some shit out of Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) Lord Voldstein. Can you just imagine? Mm-mm. Anyway, that's why he's the dusty of the day. Here we are. Bob planned himself prime minister and his friend Spielman was made king. Bob conceded that back then it was little more than childish reverie. It was more fictional, I guess you would say. But then as the internet came along, it kind of took on its own life. So he took Melosha, which is what is the name of the nation now, the self-proclaimed nation, a.k.a. his one-acre farm. It's gone from being just on paper, and now it has a website. Ba continued to research micronations online, finding information on how he could fully realize one of his own. So here we are, a micronation in the United States, a one-acre farm in Nevada, <laughs> that is it. so dry. We love to see it. Not, how big is an acre? Is an acre big? It's not that big. It's more so like a plot of land. Like your house, a front yard, maybe a little bit of a backyard. Okay. So mailbox in front. <laughs> like this actually reminds me of funny enough, we just I think beating me in Asia, both of you were there when we were talking to that man who's a moor. Oh God! Wait, which man? There's so many. I don't know that man's name. (laughs) He's talking about being a Moor, and you know how they're sovereign and all that like weird shit. But this is like I'm actually surprised he's white because this is usually some shit that like the black hoteps and Israelites and 
more you know what the white conservatives also do it too remember those men that like took over a courthouse down there in milwaukee or some shit remember the white men they were part of a militia so mm-hmm. let me let me take that back this is something that men do it, it knows no racial barriers or boundaries there is something about groups of men getting together and deciding that they own something and have power and authority over like you never hear women doing shit like this sometimes when a woman is attached to a man who's doing it you know they'll go along what is it about men and their need for like dominion that's really interesting (laughs) you know what if somebody asked me to sit down and define features of manhood that would definitely be on it this kind of desire to make a claim to space is kind of interesting and i think one of the reasons why the body of the woman is such like a hotly contested space is because it takes you out of the game for land. (laughs) You are one of the objects that we're like negotiating and navigating and making determinations about boundaries and ownership and authority. Like that is you. So you're not in this game of making any claims to any manner of land. So even though that period in which women couldn't own property is over, ideologically, people are still very much living in that place and time, period. It's really bizarre. Can I tell y'all about the citizens of Melosha? (laughs) That's Melosha. I think that's how you pronounce it. There are 35. (laughs) And they live in that one house. There there are 35 citizens of Melosha, all of whom are related to Bob. How? Them his family members. He them literally took his family members, moved them on a one acre farm, self-declared it as a nation, and said, These are my citizens. But <clears throat> so it's a multi-generational family, is what it's not, <laughs> not it, citizens. It is, it what is you calling your cousins your citizens? It, it is not a nuclear family. But wow. I do want to let y'all know that the president, the self-proclaimed dictator of Melosha, does allow dual citizenship within the u.s because uh, because look this is the reason though he said that definitely helps to have dual citizenship because then we wouldn't be able to go to walmart or stuff like that it's not walmart because it's not a self-sustaining nation it's not a self-sustaining nation so (sighs) melosha so you'd be trading with walmart then relies heavily oh you mean when he goes to shop it's not shopping it's trading it's trading. It's trading. If you can't go to Bella Noche's, i.e. the Walmart <laughs> Super Center, where can you go? Where can you go, Asia? Vitamin? If you can't go to Bella Noche. So y'all, that is my bestie ghetto. of the day. It just sounded like something that somebody very dusty would do. And like Asia rightfully mentioned, it was very dry. It's in Nevada, for God's Ooh. sakes. So it's yeah. very dusty. We so buy property in Nevada. Too. Don't do that. So when the next time in that one house, the next time you hear a Hebrew Israelite or a hotel talk about getting a plot of land and starting their own nation, it's not for fake. There's something to it. I haven't mm-hmm. recovered from the fact that 36 people live in that one house. 35, <laughs> Zimmy. Nope, How do you him. increase that number? Because <laughs> he, he got 35 citizens plus oh him. That's 36. But we don't, I don't think, it's not just one house. It's like there's a plot of land and there's like a couple of buildings. On that one acre. Yeah, one acre is I enough. I thought you said one acre build. was enough for a house and a front yard and a backyard. Well, I mean, you can... Depends on how you build up. 
I just, I don't know. I'm not good with like dimensions. I want to understand no, exactly I feel like how many people on how there. you build, like if you're just building like a family house, like living room, upper, like you could have a place on a one acre land for like three buildings. But yes, thank you for sharing the dusty of the day with me. So listen, y'all, I'm super excited to hear more about each of the political backgrounds that y'all come from. I want to know like how you came to political consciousness. I want to know where you identify along the political spectrum. I know y'all remember there was a time when we all took that political compass test. It was fraudulent, but I was pretty <laughs> I like far that to the test. left. Yeah, that was you were interesting... the most far to the left. You I were, was, yeah, Asia was the most far to the and left. And that's saying a lot because we were we all were left, left, <laughs> left, left, and Asia we was like left, 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 left. left. <laughs> Ella, she was like bottom corner, left, left, literally. Right yeah, there. Asia was the end of the coordinate plane. She was the <laughs> end. <laughs> That's actually true. But I want to talk to y'all about why that is. What kind of brought me to this place where I'm like so far away from where everybody else is. And part of my mission is to like radicalize y'all. I'm gonna just lay that on the table. I definitely mm. want to pull y'all a little further to the right, but I'm gonna do it with compelling arguments. Yes, that's how I'm gonna do it. So before we get into that, do each who wants to go first? Just talk about how you got your political education. What were your first kind of experiences being a political actor? We were aware of it because I feel like we're always political. Hello, but when did you become aware of yourself as like a political force, having an impact, having an influence, and then also the way you were being impacted by political forces around you? Where I am now is I would identify as a progressive. How I got there is, it's really not like a long journey. I think a part of me has always been someone who believes in like people having the utmost autonomy, freedom to do and move and live as they please, as long as they are not causing harm to other people. The first time I like really started thinking about my political identity, as corny as it sounds, was after I read the autobiography of Malcolm X in like somewhere in high school. I want to say 10th grade. I've always been someone who's always thought about like racial dynamics a lot growing up, even middle school, high school. I was just always hyper conscious and aware of race, what today I would call like anti-blackness, even though I didn't have the lunch back then. And so reading that book was the first time I heard somebody articulate what I was thinking and feeling about the like social and political climate of the U.S. And granted, it was wrapped up in a lot of like hotepery, <laughs> which at the time I was like subscribing to because I was like 15. And as B2Me likes to put it, you call Malcolm X your favorite conservative, right? <laughs> so at the time, I didn't think of Malcolm X as this like politically or socially conservative person. Obviously, in hindsight, he's a like a radical black conservative progressive. He's a mixture of things. That was kind of like where my initial political awareness came from was through my desire to understand the uh, understand race and racism in a western context and then I would say through college and grad school I started thinking a lot more about the interplay of race and gender and that kind of started shaping my political orientation and then to be quite honest it wasn't until like meeting you all in like clubhouse that I really started thinking through queer theory and praxis and that I think also has had a huge or big influence on like my political leaning my political identity 
it's been this slow trajectory going from, I really have a desire to understand racial dynamics in the West, particularly in the U.S. So there's something unique here happening with Black women. So more recently, there's this queer thing that's also happening that like shapes our positionality. That's been my general pathway. And in terms of what I identify as now, I think I already said, I think of myself as a progressive. Some people conflate that with liberal, <laughs> not the same thing. I'm generally someone who just thinks that progress is never a negative thing. I believe in healthcare being universal, everyone having access to housing and proper and adequate nutrition and redistribution of wealth. I know that's like something that's not popular. I don't even believe in the accumulation of wealth. I feel like when people talk about like, I want to build wealth, I'm always like, ah, but you know, that comes at the expense of somebody. I think people should be able to use drugs recreationally and not just marijuana. Like there are very few things that I'm moderate about. I can't really even think of what I'm moderate about, to be honest, but I'm sure it'll come up throughout the episode. I just wanted to say thank you so much for that, Zumi. That was really interesting to listen to, to just kind of see where you land on some of the most hot button issues that come up again and again for people. So it was really great to hear like where you land on some of those things. I always want to push you a little further to the left. What's the <laughs> What's the left lift? What's the left lift, left, 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 left? I'm trying to figure out why I ended up, because I was in the, so imagine like a coordinate plane and the lower left quadrant yeah. is where you fall if you're someone who's progressive. Asia was literally at the most bottom and most left. And I in the I corner. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't quite in the middle. I was more towards the bottom and more towards the left, but not as far out as Asia. Me and you were pretty close, B to me, and like most other people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know what perspectives I have that are more, I can't even call them moderate. I was trying to figure out what some of those differences are. So I hope like at some point in the conversation, we're able to figure out what were those things that made those differences Keeping in mind that that little quiz obviously is not, (laughs) it's not methodologically the most sound thing. So I think I'll say that as far as the test goes, I feel like the things that held me from being in the bottom corner left, like Asia was, was questions around things that I hadn't fully developed my politic around. So for example, there were questions around prison abolition that I've talked to Asia about, and I've talked to like other people about that. I'm still kind of trying to figure out where I really fall. So there was like a lot of questions that I answered like, oh, well, I don't really know. Like kind of like the answers where it's like, I'm not really sure if I would lean completely this way or that way on certain answers. So I feel like that probably was a factor. Maybe things that we may not have fully fleshed out that other people like Asia have really gone into and they know for sure this is where they stand. But that's my proposition on just the way that the test results happen. But in terms of my politic, my parents have always been super blue. They've always been super blue, hella Democrat, like hella moderate, They believe in the process, in the order of things. They believe that if you were arrested by the police, that means that you did something wrong. There's no nuance. There's no analysis. There's no anything. So that's the house that I grew up in. But 
being that I lived in the place that I lived and that I was exposed to the activism that I was exposed to, the literature that I was exposed to, even just like the different things that I did in high school in terms of internships and things like that. I got to a point where I was kind of like, I don't really think things are working the way that y'all think they were working. So I got to a point where like, whenever my parents would turn on the news, me and my dad would now be going back and forth about stuff where he's defending the Joe Bidens, the Kamala Harris's, the Barack Obama's of the world. And I'm telling him, do you know who was donating to Barack Obama's campaign? And I'm introducing all these other factors. And it wasn't like they rejected it. It was more so there was this acceptance of, well, that's the system. And I'm like, damn. So that's that's the world y'all exist in. That's how y'all are moving. And they feel like, That's the only way any type of real change is going to happen. I feel like I'm part of that generation for my parents where we're not interested in doing what they've been told to do is what's going to bring about change, but exploring other things outside of the box, really looking into these candidates, looking into their positions, and looking into whether or not after they've made all these campaign promises once they're in office, if they're actually going to follow through. A lot of people my age who are interested in politics have really been on is, okay, you said that you're going to do all these policy things. You posted all this stuff on your website, but are you actually really going to follow through on that? So that's the environment that I've grown up in. It's like this political environment of accountability, of not just saying you're going to do something, but we actually want to see the results. Because, like, we've seen our parents suffer, we've seen our grandparents suffer, and we see the world that we're living in today. I just feel like a lot of us, we're not having it no more. So that's the environment that I've really grown up in, is just this environment of making sure that we're not just talking about the stuff that we want to see, but that, you know, there's tangibles. People talk about tangibles. We actually want to see tangibles. You know what? I want to be honest with y'all. When I saw this episode was coming up, I kind of got a little tense. Political discourse actually gets me tense, y'all, because it's everything to me. And I've talked to y'all a little bit about some of the political work that I've done. Y'all saw me cussing out Damon, who was a cultural attache of BLMLA. Y'all heard me cuss him out. So y'all know that I've been involved in political movement spaces. I don't know how much I've shared with y'all about my political education. At the t- Before I get into it, let's rewind. So how did I first come to understand myself as like a political entity that there were like politics involved in situations? It was probably one of these kind of documentary-esque videos that my father brought home one day of the pyramids and the pharaohs depicted on the pyramids and their noses knocked off and I don't know this is before Tariq Nasheed and I want y'all to know that niggas been making their version of histories that are like documenting white supremacy and anti-blackness and those are two big concepts in and of themselves like what do those words even mean there's like a lot of literature y'all can go to to suss out the lay of the land but essentially it's like it's about how bodies 
are organized in political space. It's how bodies are placed on a political map using race as the guideline. That's what white supremacy is really speaking to. It's always positioning whiteness in a very particular way. And then I argue that it's also positioning blackness in a very particular way. I can remember doing some of my earliest reading on white supremacy and this idea of what it means to be black in college. It was only in college that I really delved into these ideas about race. I thought I knew everything there was to being black because I was black. Hello. (laughs) So I know everything about that. You can't teach me nothing until I got to college and saw there was an entire academic discipline. And I was like, oh, okay. So we're doing this with the mythology. Uh, We're doing this and having our work by peers. We're doing this in a very particular kind of way. And I was like, oh, okay. So the video that my dad showed me, that wasn't necessarily peer reviewed. That was just people, you know, saying how they felt about some historical moments. And maybe they didn't have all the details about the historical moments. Before college, before I even chose to be an African-American studies major, I was organizing. My very first, first protesting was around the Iraq war. And I was mm. organizing with like white communists at that time, white socialists. And we were doing a whole march. We needed to make flyers. We needed to make materials. And so I got an introduction to political propaganda, the way issues get framed. I was like, oh, okay. So this is how we're going to talk about this compared to how everybody else is talking about this war. We're not talking about it in the same way. We're not using the same words. We're not using the same histories to contextualize this war. And so that was my first introduction. I was hooked, y'all. It felt so good to be doing something about how horrible I felt. Because it all started from feeling horrible about this idea that we're going to war. Because I actually stayed home from school that day when the Twin Towers fell. I was in middle school at that time. I did not go to school. I just stayed home all day and watch that footage. And somehow it didn't make any sense to me for their award to be the result of that. That didn't make any sense to me. Like, like, wait a minute, the horror of this was the number of people who died and how they died. What can be more brutal than dying in in a war? That's what set me on my path. Y'all was taking calculus and I had this calculus in a teacher who happened to be a whole Marxist, if you can believe it. And so that was the link between like an interest in the sciences and also this kind of left of center politics. I organized against the Iraq war. One of the people I met while I was organizing was a graduate student at my undergraduate institution. He said, hey, you know, there are a lot of us there. You know, if you decided to go there, you will be in really good political company. And I said, oh, it's not that. And by the way, it was by the beach. <laughs> my campus was by the beach and it was beautiful. So it was the politics. It was the natural beauty that got me in my institution. And I became an African-American studies major. And I did not know I was going to be studying under like real live Black revolutionaries. I got to take courses. And I don't know if we want to name instructors. I usually don't, y'all, because it's political. (laughs) I walk into a room and say I got my political education from a certain person and the conversation changes. So I typically just talk about the political issues and leave my background where it is. But it always seems to come up, (laughs) y'all. But I also want to segue into how some of our political ideas kind of connect us back to what's happening right now. There are some big landmark situations that are going on. And maybe you can tell us how you fall on the issue and what part of your political learning and development led you to land in that particular place. The first one is Roe v. 
Wade. I mean, I'm pretty far left on Roe v. Wade. I believe that all women and non-men, anyone who can be pregnant can make whatever decision they want to make about their body at any stage of gestation. I know that's like an unpopular opinion, but I just, I don't think it's anyone's place to tell any about anyone else what they should do with their body. I think if you have strong beliefs about when life begins and when it's appropriate to terminate a pregnancy, I think that's great. And you should probably just apply it to yourself the way that I do, because I'm actually a religious person. So I do have actually, I do have beliefs about for me when I think uh, life begins and it's not at conception, but <laughs> you know, I, well, I do Zinni, think that- I gotta know, when do you think life begins? When a fetus is viable and can exist without like extreme intense medical intervention outside of the uterus, then for me, that would be like when I would make that decision. But I don't think it's up to me to tell you or V to me when you should think life begins. V to me might think life begins at conception. You might think life begins. I think that at life birth. begins at ovulation. Girl, and oh, see, that's why I don't like talking to Asian. You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so for me, like that's why that's my politic is because everybody is gonna have a different stance, opinion, belief. It can be driven by religion, your sense of morality and ethics, and so you should take that and apply it to your own body and your own uterus. You don't get to tell other people what to do. Other people don't share your beliefs. I recognize the like everyone's not a Christian or everyone's not Muslim or, or whatever it is. So my policy is just like, mind your fucking body and mind your own uterus. Like worry about yourself, sis or bruh <laughs> or they, right? You don't have to think this big and make all these decisions about other people if you just worry about yourself. So I know what decision I would make for me. And that's all I need to know. I don't really care what any other pregnant person wants to do with their body or their pregnancy. Like, do you, boo? Ooh, Zimmy. You know I love to push back on you, Zimmy. I think you're so smart. I love to push back on what you say because I just love the back and what's forth. The, what's the pushback? <laughs> yeah, no, but I love it. Like, it, it's just very exciting. Okay, so the pushback is what if I said that these ideas coming from a whole biologist, right? I'm a microbiologist in training. So what if I said that these ideas are political? The idea of where life begins? What if I said that sperm and egg cells are already alive? They're living as separate entities before they ever come together in, in conception. So I just wanted to name that because, and, and it's not conception in biology, it's fertilization. Okay. And a lot of other species do it. It's not unique to us. And so how do these meanings change when we apply it to the rest of the biological kingdom? That's always something I really like to do. I said biological kingdom. I mean, to other Animal. biological. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> other phyla, right? Other orders, other genuses. I just wanted to say that because that's always been really interesting for me politically is to just kind of see how some of these ideas about biology have shaped so much of what we think politically. And I think that's what's so interesting about the Roe v. Wade issue because it's like you can see the, the, the political life that science takes on. You know, science is not this inert thing that you come in and you're objective and you publish your results. No, it's very much animated by the political forces that move us all. So I don't want anybody to think that 
scientists are apolitical just because some of us tend not to talk about politics. Oh no, <laughs> it's most certainly a political project. I want to wake that up because, you know, these ideas about where life begins, how interesting that egg cells and sperm cells are already alive the entire time. So what is this, what do we mean by when does life begin? You mean when does distinct life distinct from those two cells? Again, I would say we're always those two cells, literally. <laughs> None of the material... I mean which is why I'm really careful about the language of like calling a fetus, a fetus, you know, people be like the baby and the person is like two months pregnant. Like there is no baby. It's, <laughs> there just isn't, it isn't. We, we can see it. We have science now and we can see what it looks like. I think that the, like the studies show this, where most people are on Roe v. Wade is that they want pregnant people to have access to abortions up to the, the logical people because you know then they're, they're like the nutcases who protest outside of like every fucking plant parenthood but the normal people feel like there should be that's why i would say i diverge from people the normal liberals democrats is they feel like well there should be some kind of restriction at some point people are usually talking about like midway through or after the second trimester and again i get that I understand why that that becomes an uncomfortable area for people because it's like, oh, well, we, we can't actually see a life here. We, not a life. We can see something that resembles a baby. It feels more tangible. It feels mm. more real to folks. But even in those situations, I really think you should just apply it to yourself. <laughs> like, I don't get to dictate to Asia and V to me when a fetus becomes not a fetus. It's not my body. Mm. Like, how you force somebody to literally carry and give birth that's a lot of trauma on the body mentally that's where i'd be wanting to push people more because you know people take the real safe position of like abortion up until the first trimester or like abortion up until the second trimester when it really should always be a decision but that the pregnant person makes with them and like whatever medical professional or a real medical professional not them fucking crisis centers that be like pretending they can give you that they're going to terminate a pregnancy, but really they're going to pressure you into <laughs> continuing on. It's only a conversation between two people. It's like a conversation between the pregnant person and the person who's going to possibly do the procedure. I, I get it. It makes you uncomfortable. I'm not even going to sit here in front. Like the idea of someone terminating a pregnancy is seven months doesn't make me uncomfortable. It does. I can also say I would never do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it makes me super uncomfortable. I would never, I would never do that. I don't even know if I understand why somebody beyond a, a you know, medical reason, it's unsafe for the, the pregnant person or the fetus, you know, has abnormalities. I don't understand that decision outside of those conditions, but it's a really good thing that it's not my business to understand it because I don't have to worry about it. That is so interesting because individualism means a lot of things, but it doesn't mean that. It never means that. It never means you having a right to self-determination over your very own body. And it never seems to extend to these ideas around when you get to decide to terminate your pregnancy. That is so interesting to me. The limits of individualism never captures that as beautifully as you just did. And that's why I don't fuck with it. It's on the wrong side of political spectrum for me, <laughs> but I definitely vibe with what you said. Feed me before we really get into it. Do you want to say anything that's in me before you tell us how you feel about Roe v. Wade? Actually, I agree with Zimmy. I would more so err on the side of like having policy that doesn't put me in a position where I'm the one who has to decide what are the limitations for people 
when people can make certain decisions because I don't know what that person is feeling. I don't know what it is they're considering. I don't know what they're facing, but I know that I, if I was a policymaker, if I was a politician, I would want to give them full range and ability to have access to do what they needed to do in the most safe, comfortable, professional environment possible. So that is where I'm at with what Zimmy said. Can I just add this last piece, Asia? How uncomfortable is that? Like if your morals get to dictate, there are a lot of sh- there's a lot of shit people do that makes me uncomfortable. And I'm like, are people comfortable with the idea of other people's discomfort determining what they can do? Because man, there's there's some folks that a lot of things I do would make them radically uncomfortable. I'm glad Calling that they- yourself a misandrist being one of them. I mean, I'm glad that they don't have any say over anything I get to do. I'm glad I get to be like, fuck you. I don't want to decide that for nobody. Why would you even want to be in a position where you're making decisions like that for other people based on like your level of comfort or discomfort? Box that shit up and take it to go. Don't get that to nobody else. That's it. So- The basis of Roe v. Wade is really about privacy and it's really about allowing people to make whatever medical decisions they feel necessary without having to consider the repercussions of the state, which I absolutely believe is a human right. I don't understand. No, actually, I do understand. But I guess I'm more so, I'm irritated that in 2022, we even have to go through a period where we're having conversations about our Supreme Court revoking that decision, amending it in any way, shape, or form. I think the thing that was most disheartening was all of the voter laws that went into place soon after a particular election, the ways in which different states across the nation quickly began to draft anti-abortion laws, began to draft policy that would limit Anybody who has the ability to be pregnant, their ability to fully exercise all of their options. The thing that sucks the most is that I always think about it from like a global perspective. This is coming after we've seen women in Latin America making really huge strides in terms of advocating for their ability to have access to just like medical options when it comes to contraceptives, getting pregnant and things like that. I'm worried because I'm seeing like a pattern even before Roe v. Wade, but definitely also after Roe v. Wade of other nations also like feeling emboldened to go as far as they want to, to revoke femme presenting folks, people who identify as women, people who can be pregnant, just their ability to just exercise all of their medical options. In some parts of the United States, we're seeing people who are petitioning against like just general sex education. Like they don't want their children to learn about condoms. They don't want their children 
to learn about like just general safe sex practices because they think it's indoctrination. We're getting to that point where there's becoming this, this normalization of backwards thinking of you feeling like you just sheltering your children from the world means that they never have to face it. And I just don't know what benefit that is for like human development. If we're really talking about like doing some things within our community, we're going to need forward thinking people. Mm -hmm. We need people who are open-minded. We're going to need people who are ready to unlearn, relearn. I just don't really see this generation of parents like doing any of that. And I see the policy kind of like reinforcing that. So it makes me a little bit worried. When I was listening to you all, I was like, mm, like that is really connecting me to some of my earliest thoughts about Roe. I can remember being in high school, having these knockdown drag out debates with a Christian conservative who said, well, during slavery, they did everything they had to do to make sure that people were free. Shouldn't I do things for unborn children? Shouldn't I do the same things for unborn children? And I was like, first of all, this is not racial slavery, but I can see how for you, that's the depth of this. That's the gravity of this. And that was the first time I could kind of see that she really believes that what she's doing is on behalf of these unborn children. Yet she could never really explain why she wasn't concerned with the unborn children or the children already here in much the same capacity. Why is there a diff a change once the children are here? In society? What do you think about all of these other societal issues that are influ influencing who gets abortions and who doesn't? What happens to them during and after? There are so many other influences that really shape and mold even what happens with this medical procedure of abortion. So why aren't you interested in any of that? Why is it always just this one particular moment, this one spot, this one myopic kind of view on a huge question about life, asking some of these philosophical questions, some of these biological questions, but then also having these really interesting questions about power over the body. So that's something I really want to just kind of say about the way I came to look at Roe. I came to kind of step back and want to look at all the things that people weren't really saying, because this is an issue that's been discussed for so long. So I came to be more interested in what doesn't get commonly said about the body, about power. And so that's what kind of guided my reading and guides the politic that I have now around this issue. And I just want to say, y'all, nobody was ever talking about, you know, taking a child that was born or could be born without harm to themselves or harm to the mother. And physicians were against that. It's all about doing this assessment, not only of when the person who is pregnant wants to end their pre pregnancy could be had at no cost to, you know, the person pregnant or to the child, then of course we would want that. Who is against that? You, you kind of see the issue framed in opposition to something mm -hmm. we're saying. Nobody's saying that. This is weird. Nobody's making these arguments. Nobody's making these suggestions. Why are you presuming them? And also no one's doing it. Like if you look at the actual numbers for shins, I think it's like 92 or 93% happen in the first trimester. Yeah. The first 12 weeks, the overwhelming majority. And then for the remainder of those that don't, I think like another like 4% or 5% are within the second trimester. 
And so for that last like two to three percent, we're literally overwhelmingly talking about people who wanted to have a child and for some medical reason are unable to either poses a threat to the mother or the the fetus, you know, has abnormalities that means that it's either not going to be viable or not going to live a long life after birth or a child would have like some really severe medical conditions. To your point, Asia, it is interesting how people frame it when you like actually look at the numbers and it's like the conversation about the right to choose is not about women running out in droves or pregnant people running out in droves and having late term abort. That's not even a thing. No, so, like, uh, Zimmy, uh, even- you are wrong. The majority of <laughs> abortions that are happening are happening by loose women, uh, loose such as yourself, chick. who are using not two dollar hoes, two dollar hoes, um, who are using abortion <laughs> as birth control. Oh, so wow. they're stopping by the clinic every oh, wow. week, getting wow. their cards punched. <laughs> wow! And they're getting a. Check. They got frequent flyer miles, and they're getting a check. Wow! That's where yeah. our tax are going. So, but isn't that know. so ridiculous? Because we we end up having to go into the deep debate of like, well, when do you think a fetus is viable? You know, but it's like. In the real world, most people find out they're pregnant, and if they're not interested in carrying the pregnancy, they terminate very early on. And also, we have to talk about the fact that it's a lot of these interventions, these restrictions that actually limit people's ability to have to terminate within the first trimester. Like when you're in one of these states where you don't have access. Yeah, I have my own personal beliefs. Well, none of it really matters because this is not how pregnant people are making decisions about how they should terminate their pregnancy people aren't like "Mm, in month seven i was interested but (laughs) month eight i'm not feeling it i'm just not feeling it no more can i just also say one last thing to me like these late trimester or late term terminations are actually really traumatic for most of the of course the pregnant people who have to go through them it's usually like pregnancies that people desired that overwhelmingly end up in like these late term terminations and so it's like it's even fucked up how we I, the whole thing's just fucked up just making it's because you're up. loose <sighs> and can you just imagine my life i had the board no, that's what they oh. say it's because you're loose but what i did want to say is i do find that if i bring up the ninety-two thousand black children who are currently in the american foster care system yeah. in these abortion debates i generally find that people don't have an answer the men who are demanding that these women keep these children they don't have a solution and when you hear them talk about these kids what they'll say is well what do i look like raising another man's child so you want to be the person who gets to determine whether or not I continue on to bringing a pregnancy to full term, but you don't even care about the children that are on ground now. And another thing, while we talking about this, didn't Kanye West just say something about like the black babies who were all the black babies? But the nine Kanye million West, black babies black, who uh, were babies, aborted black last fetuses. Year. But I don't even I don't even think that number is accurate. But whatever. But to so the, the point I wanted to make about Kanye West is Kanye West, one, could have adopted mm. a black baby or 30 if he if he chose to. Mm. Um, and two, Kanye didn't even he bother to have children with, with a, a black white woman. woman. So like, 
where the fuck do you get off? And Mr. when he get on, he gonna leave your ass for a white Mr. girl. I didn't even procreate with black women. I've never fostered any black children. I've never adopted a black child, but I'm here to talk about all the black children suffering. That is such an interesting juxtaposition. So would you make the argument that if Kanye West wanted to talk about or critique abortion rates or if he was concerned about abortion rates in the black community that his children would have to be you know with a black woman in order for his critiques to be valid because you know that's the pushback you would get no but what i'm saying is kanye west has never shown interest in black children oh that's that's the short of it he's never shown interest in black children and where is donda academy where is i don't know is it in a black neighborhood not in a black neighborhood no, no, no. You know, I when I say I was one of the three people to cancel Kanye, I meant that I don't know nothing that man got going on. I didn't even know there was a Donda Academy until people <laughs> until like this week. And you know, I, I do Academy. just school, I, I wanna school. say that the black men in particular who talk the most about how women just don't care about these kids and what's going on with these children. Hence my whole thing about how men just don't like kids. It's all an act. Like, there's nothing behind it because they will talk about these kids in the worst fucking way. They will tell you, why can't you take $20 and go to the store and buy some beans and bread and feed them? That's a real story. Hold on. Can I pause, beat me? That's a real story, beat me, telling. A man literally said he didn't understand why he had to pay so much in child support. Mind you, the the average man pays $3,000 a year. Thank you. Like, $200 something a month. <laughs> we'll talk about this when we talk about the men don't like kids but I just want to point out that Vietnamese is telling a real story this man was like kids shouldn't cost that much and a woman was like but you have to feed them and he was like you go to the grocery store with $20 you can get a pack of rice beans bread, <laughs> and potatoes like and you can feed that child for a month. I- they will talk about these we'll kids about down. This. They'll talk about how much time they take up. They'll talk about how they be fucking they shit up. And then they will. They don't want to date same- women with kids. They don't want to <laughs> date women with kids. They'll talk all this shit about single they against mothers. Abortion, though. They'll tell you that you're ran through. They'll tell you not to get abortions. And then in the same breath, they'll be the first ones to weaponize. Oh, aren't you supposed to be taking care of your kids? Ain't you a single mom? Ain't you supposed to be doing this, this, that, and the third? That shit really does blow my mind. And Kanye West is like the biggest example. He'll be one of the first niggas to sit here and talk about how black women. Well, well, hold on, B to me. Is he the biggest example? Because we also have Herschel Walker as we we're talking about politics. Many examples. But wait, we're talking about politics and we're talking about Roe v. Wade particularly. We have Herschel Walker. We have that Cameron person in Louisville, Kentucky. But Herschel Walker is notorious for being pro-family anti-abortion, but he has paid for numerous women. The point I wanted to make is that the funny thing about a lot of these men who do all of this, a million black babies have been killed. Where the number changes every time you hear it. <laughs> is, if I was a betting woman, I would wager that at least 70% of these men have paid for an abortion or contributed to an abortion I'll match financially. That. That's I'll the match fascinating that. part. Herschel Walker is not an anomaly. 
There are oh, a lot yeah, of men who do this talk around like black babies and the black family and the black union, but like they're Herschel Walkers amongst us. They've contributed to an abortion or 10. And it has oh. to be said that black women are going to suffer a disproportionate impact as a result of these abortion restrictions. Mm-hmm. So I think we make up something like 40% of all abortions that are occurring in the United States. I just wanted to name that and lift that up because some people name that as like a reason to have cause and alarm about the fact abortions are happening versus the care, access to care and outcomes of care that Black women are facing when they go in to get any manner of medical intervention. I just wanted to lift that up because I feel like the focus is all wrong. You're not concerned about what the outcomes are for Black women who are going medical system period i'm always interested in that as someone who's working professionally in biomedicine i'm like how do i get access into leadership roles as a black woman in the field but then the other part is that of, of that is the outcomes for black women who are actually going to receive the care be the participants in the clinical research studies that i work on and so i just wanted to say that this is one of the things that we're concerned about is specifically how is role and the restriction of access to this medical intervention, how was that going to impact Black women in particular? So I'm so glad that we spent time really talking about it because it's very, very pertinent. And I know we're going to come back to it. I don't believe in negotiating over my body <laughs> and my medical decision. I just, I just don't believe in negotiating about that. I can let you know what the you know, the limitations are like, I don't want to be pregnant because X, Y, Z. And you're like, well, I'm going to work on those things. Like you say, you don't want to be pregnant because you don't feel financially secure. You know, like, you know, where you, where you are in your life, then I can, we can work on that. So there's so many other ways that, that partners can intervene on these limitations or our, you know, our boundaries around this that don't have to do with having anything to say about the final choice that I make. The final choice is mine, right? So I just wanted to say that because I've seen that come up in so many different instances, but I definitely don't want to miss this very important geopolitical topic. We have a lot going on around the trial and conviction of Brittany Griner. B to me, you've been very close to this. You've been raising a lot of awareness around the different phases of her journey through Russia's criminal justice system. Where are you right now? Because I know this was actually weighing really heavily on you. Will you talk a little bit about that before you tell us about what's happening with Brittany? Yeah, it's been really hard because I don't know how many people really understand that what's happening with Brittany Griner is it's it can happen to anybody. And her case in particular has shed a light that there's quite a few American citizens who are being detained in Russia on similar charges unlawfully. And I know we as Black people, we talk about traveling a lot. We talk about going to other places. We talk about leaving the United States or whatever European countries that we currently reside in. I just don't know if enough of us are understanding like what the impact of this really will mean as it pertains to foreign policy, the ability for Black people to move in and out of different nation states and et cetera. So that's like where I am. And tell us a little bit about this denial of an appeal that recently happened. What do you know about the lead up to that and what the aftermath of that has been? So the appeal thing has been a long time coming. Basically since 
Uh, he was initially convicted. It was made known that the Russian government was going to want her as well as, you know, anybody else who was eligible for this prisoner swap to go through like the full processes. So that included filing for appeal as well. It was assumed that the court was going to uphold the sentencing, but it was with small hope that they would at least reduce it because there's a discrepancy about how long it's actually going to take for the Russian government to respond to the offer that's been put down on the table. So officially, the last thing that's happened is that our government has offered to the Russian government in exchange for this particular prisoner, Victor Bout, we're willing to do a prisoner stop swap with Brittany Griner and Paul Whalen. That was the initial offer. But since then, the Russian government has also thrown out another person that they want released from, that they want released as well. There's a lot of back and forth particularly because the Russian government has also set certain standards about how they didn't want a lot of press and publicity around this whole situation. They were very clear about they weren't going to give in to public pressures and things like that. But as things have developed with Ukraine um, and other things that they're dealing with their foreign relations as they continue this invasion, of another country, it's feeling more and more like this particular issue is not at the top of their list. So with the fact that the denial has happened and her sentence has been upheld, the next thing that's going to happen is for her to be transferred to a penal colony. Her lawyers are saying that it could take up to a few months for that to happen, but With her situation, as it's been, things have been kind of like fast-tracked. So I don't know how long it'll take for her to be transferred. But for those who don't know, penal colonies in uh, Russia are their prison systems and they're descendants of the Soviet Union's gulag system, which is notorious for torture, horrible conditions in terms of hygiene, medical care, and just like different things. So I don't know how she's going to be okay. But as of right now, it's just looking more and more like the Russian government is really like milking this. And some people are saying it's also because in the past, it's been the United States government that's had the leverage. And the United States government has often milked their power, their ability to have leverage in these relationships. So some people are thinking that it's a little bit of a back. Mm. You know, this is when my seat for prison abolition comes in. It is absolutely a political apparatus. And the fact that Brittany Griner has been sentenced to what, like nine years? Nine and um, a half years. Nine and a half years. Wow. For something that's legal where we live in different parts of the United States, in different countries, you know, it's really, it's really terrifying. And some of us are connecting and relating to what she's going through. We see ourselves in her and some of us don't. And that's interesting that some people just don't see the how... black cis hat men. Oh, okay. 
Well, I was talking about some other people too, and it's not just them. Ooh. I'm throwing shade at a lot of people, but y'all don't see how this geopolitical issue impacts you if you move about the world. The United States has a lot of enemies. The United States has tensions with a lot of different countries. And if you wanted to see more of the world, what does that mean for you? I mean, your your little blue passport grants you access to many places you can go without even a visa. But what about these instances? What about these moments, especially when you're seeking opportunity for yourself that you couldn't get here in the United States? The United States loves to report itself to be the land of opportunity, but some of us have to escape you. Many of us have to escape you. I want to lift that up as well. The other thing though, have you been following this at all? What is, what is this kind of land with you? Because you, I mean, you just came back from traveling abroad. Has mm. the reality of this situation shaped the way you feel moving about the world? I don't think this situation has shaped it at all. I think I already thought about how I move about the world before the Brittany Griner situation. There are places I would never go. Dubai was one of the places that like all the black people <laughs> were going to for quite a bit. Of t- I mean, still probably to this day. Like that's one of the black girl traveler destinations, black guys, boys trip destinations. But just knowing what I know about how they extract labor in Dubai, how they were able to build up that that part of the world, you know, basically through modern day enslavement of people from Southeast Asia. It's wild because it's like, oh shit, they're, they're really still doing slavery. Not like theoretically, not abstractly <laughs> the way we talk about it. They like doing this shit for real in practice. And then also just hearing about like cases there where women have been like sexually harassed or assaulted and then they have been criminalized. Arrested for driving even after it's legal. I don't know if that's in Dubai. Is that Dubai? In the UAE. Oh, see, I didn't even know that. I'm talking about cases of women who have been sexually assaulted and then charged because of the whatever moral code or religion. And so... I am always very conscious about like places that I absolutely would never fucking travel to. Dubai, Russia, no shade, many parts of the Middle East, (laughs) just because of their conflict with the U.S., because of how the U.S. intervenes and destabilizes and destructs. Those relationships could sour at any fucking moment. And oftentimes these these places... remember... Brittany Griner was traveling to Russia because that's where she was getting her biggest payday. I feel like that's kind of like a separate conversation about like, and when we talk about women in sports, like why do those women have to travel? So that's a little bit different. That's like traveling for work. I don't travel for work. I travel purely for, you know what I mean? I'm kind of protected in that way. I get to choose, right? I am not in a position. I mean, well, I am being financially exploited, but in, in, in oppressed, but not in the way that like women athletes are, right? Where they literally have to go abroad to earn a living that they should be earning here. Brittany was in a fundamentally different position than I'm in, where I'm just kind of like traveling around for leisure, just for fun, shits and giggles, kicks. It's not tied to like my career the way it is. For example, women in the WNBA. And so I have choice. I have a choice and agency that those women don't have in the same way. You know what I mean? To go back to the question, I've just, I've always understood that the U.S. has like really tumultuous and shitty relationships with many nations around the world, oftentimes because of how destructive the U.S. government has been 
So for that reason or places where I just like look at the political landscape and I'm like, nah, <laughs> as a woman, as a black woman, as a black person, like there's like, I actually, when we were in, so I just got back from um, Dominica and we, when we were there, we were, we were going somewhere, I think like snorkeling or something. And we ended up having a conversation about like places we traveled and Germany came up and my homegirl Robin was talking about how, like when she was in Germany, she was getting off the the train or subway and somebody called her a nigger bitch, like a, a, a neo-Nazi like skinhead. And of course my dumb ass made a joke. Like I would have laughed because I was like, you know, the way it sounds in German, like nigger bitch. <laughs> Can you imagine somebody saying that with like a, I know I'm sick, but I say that to say it. I was like, yeah, I've never had any desire to go to Germany, not because of the story she told, but just because of like my understanding of Germany, the historical context, how do whites be white in, in Germany? <laughs> it's not by accident that I like to be amongst the black and browns. They're just, there's a lot I think that you have to weigh when you're a black woman, black person, person traveling globally. Mm-hmm. You have to weigh racism. You have to weigh, is this a place that is going to be well, oppressive Zimmy, to me as a woman? Well, some people who what is the U.S. That. Hold on real quick. What has the U.S. done over here? Like, there's so much shit. And unfortunately, because of gender oppression, Brittany didn't have the, she didn't have the option. You know what I'm saying? So, sorry. That was, that's all I wanted to say. Well, I was just going to say that there's some people who believe that racism does not exist outside of the United States of America. And they don't think that there's anything they need to be worried about because they have a blue passport. Um, You know? Yeah. Yeah. Are you okay? And (laughs) I've heard arguments of black men in particular, where they'll say that, well, she just went over and she did that because she thought that she was just going to be protected. Kind of like this projection of like, they feel like when they go and do there's going to be protected. I wanted you to get closer to the mic because there was a moment where you were perfectly close and it sounded really good. Damn. Sorry, I just got to Treat it. the mic like a dick. It's been close. a long time, y'all. Oh. So it feels <laughs> awkward. I don't know. Girl, saying I've been the, so the last thing I wanted to say about the whole Brittany Griner situation is just that I truly am disgusted, and I'm quite appalled by the general lack of empathy. That's mm. coming from a lot of us in the black community. I'm stunned by how we're not able to connect the dots between state sanctioned violence um, and the way that it affects black people outside the United States of America. A lot of black people have an attachment to that carceral shit. There is the conversation about the hypocrisy, right, that exists within the United States government with opposing what the Russian government has done to her, while at the same time, federally, marijuana is still, like, illegal. You will get serious time at the federal level at different state levels, we can talk about how it's been decriminalized, but at these different states where that's not the case, it's a felony. Um, and even when we talk about conditions that we are housing inmates in, we can also talk about the terrible conditions that exist within the American carceral system as well. 
for our inmates. We can talk about the prison labor. <laughs> we can talk about the inadequate access to medical care, much like the things that we can see happening in Russia with mm. their penal con- colonies. While, yes, I'm really upset about what's happening with her over there, it's not lost on me at all. The fact that those very same things exist in the nation that I'm living in. Actually, I hadn't thought about that till now. How does the U.S. get to have the moral high ground? How do you go to Russia and say this is overly punitive? This is targeted when they can be like, but didn't y'all lock Khalif brought her up for allegedly stealing a backpack that he ain't still for like two years? You know, like we but have, that's that's what the, the U.S. United government States, can't have the moral high ground. They can't that's tell what the United they can't States. tell anybody that they're being overly punitive. You don't. You literally can't. Like we are the <laughs> one nation in the world that cannot look at any other nation and say that is too punitive. But that you know why they get to harsh. do that, Jimmy? Let me tell you why they get to do that because they sit on that Security Council. And mm. this is what the United States have been doing on the international stage for a very long time. They get to go into Iran, assassinate their democratically elected leader, and then turn around and say, we're here to bring democracy. They can drop bombs in Afghanistan, left and right, up down center, and talk about how they're there to save all the people. And they don't know why the Taliban is there. They don't understand why there's a rebellion. That's their MO. That's what they do. And they get to do it because guess what? We have nuclear weapons and you don't. And we've implemented policies to make sure that you don't get to develop nuclear weapons ever. But in this case, it's interesting because Russia could make a case and say, y'all do this shit all the time. Like, what's, what's beef? And I feel like that's what they're doing, which is why the United States can't do much. They're just like... Yeah, you all <laughs> incarcerated people for drugs for decades. You ruined lives, wrecked communities, wrecked households. And they were black and brown people just like Britney. <laughs> so imagine the U.S. being like, oh, it's because of it's because she's black or she's queer. It's like, but didn't y'all do the same thing to black and queer people? Ooh, child hypocrisy so jumped glad. out. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. so glad that nuclear power came up. Beating me, when I was first taking my earliest chemistry classes and I learned about radioactive atoms. And when I came to figure out that this was so powerful and the power could be harnessed even in weapons, it really got the scientists and me excited. But when I started learning about who had this power and how they were using it, it really turned on my political passion. I was like, oh my God, I want to read everything I can. I want to learn everything I can. I want to know more about nuclear testing because this was one of the one of the darkest times in medical experimentation using testing nuclear weapons on the people of the Marshall Islands was Mm. something that I spent a lot of time reading about. And that really just totally captivated my political consciousness about nuclear power and weapons and who gets to have access to that. And what does it mean to have like the power of like existential threats to countries we're talking about annihilation so total so devastating and will be devastating decades upon decades in some instances Mm -hmm. so i think that that's terrifying (laughs) and i love to read and watch film about nuclear experimentation world war ii and the lead up to the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then so many other examples of the use of other really toxic chemicals, disease, hello, on this very continent we live on, the use of infectious diseases to devastate people. So I just, y'all, it's deep. 
got to connect it back to science always. But I just wanted to name a little bit about how all of this comes to me and lands with me when I think about some of these topics. So y'all, we've reached kind of the conclusion of our conversation. There's so much more to talk about. I see many more episodes to come on political issues in particular. So are we going to talk about the ladies who was doing it and doing it and doing it well? And doing it well. Doing it and doing it and doing it well. They are doing it. Yes. This is the moment where we pause to appreciate somebody who is just really amazing and giving us all the feels, all the good vibes. And we're going to focus on the political. You know, y'all, in this whole conversation, we talked so little about electoral politics. We spent most of our time talking about issues and big ideas, not so much who we're going to vote for. I love that. You know, that's why electoral politic conversations kind of just, they kind of have me zone out and listen in to see what people are saying. But I zone out. I vote where organizations that are doing the kind of work I appreciate tell me to vote electorally, but I don't get into it the way some of y'all really get into these people. But I want to hear from y'all. So I know that B2Me is going to tell us a little bit about Nina Turner. I just want to shout out Nina Turner because she's that girl. Like Nina Turner has been one of the people who in my political activism and watching has always kept it a cool thousand. Nina Turner was the one who went on national television and was like, if you want to label me an angry black woman, you're damn right I'm angry. There's a lot of stuff to be angry about. Yes. I'm angry about how the kids in Flint still don't got clean water. I'm angry about that. That's a real one. I really always appreciate people like Nina Turner who are always doing this like hard, heavy lifting work of grassroots organizing, but who don't always necessarily get the rewards that they deserve in a position in office where they can do things. But I also really appreciate Nina Turner helping us stay focused on the issues. Much like what Asia just mentioned, I think part of what makes being like an active and a well-informed voter is like you staying well-informed on your core issues. And Nina Turner always leads with the issues. So I always appreciate that. I love Nina. That's my whore. That's my whole <laughs> whore right there. Like, you ask me what, what Black woman in politics I love. I gang, wish she could gang. run for president, but the world is not ready. She's like 800 years before her time. Nina Turner is shit. <laughs> I see some ladies who aren't on the list, but I do want to give them a super duper quick shout out. And that's uh, Ayanna Presley and Rashida mm. Tlaib. They also gang, gang, gang. And, gang, um, gang, gang. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What are they called again? The squad. The, the squad. squad. Oh, and Ilhan Omar, the squad. So gang. Gang, gang, gang. Just shout them out real quick. But who I want to shout out, give a longer shout out for Ain't Not Doing It is Corey Bush. Corey Bush is fucking dope. For those of you who don't know, I think she's, uh, is she in Missouri? Is Corey Bush? I want to say Corey Bush is in Missouri. Corey Bush is a former nurse who decided to run after like all the fuckery she saw happen with the the police and Mike Brown and a host of other issues that I believe took place in St. Louis. She Um, is, absolutely. Super dope. Corey Bush is literally a woman of the people. She came from a working class background. I think at one point her now ex-husband, I want to say, but maybe still husband and her kids were houseless. They slept in a car. She's somebody who really like grinded her way from the bottom ran a couple times, lost a couple times, was not deterred. She persisted. (laughs) 
and shows up as her authentic self. Sometimes people get into these political positions and they super duper radical when they on the outside and then they get in and you start to see the conforming. Cori Bush is, is doing none of that. She's still doing her shit, still talking that progressive, uber duper progressive, black, super duper black shit. And she's doing it from within the system. So shout out to her. That's a queen. Dang, um, dang, unfortunately, dang, dang. she lost at the, the year the squad all, all got into office, but she was not deterred. She came back around and won. In an mm. upset the second time around. So she's honorary squad. Some of her positions on issues include defunding the police, criminal justice and police reform, gang abortion shit. rights, Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, tuition free state college, and trade school. Gang, 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 gang. All <laughs> tuition free. Look, gang shit. Anybody who's talking about tuition free college. You have my attention because you what? didn't say you gang, didn't gang, say canceling gang. student debt. Yeah, she's gang, also gang, advocating gang, gang. student debt. And I wanted to tell you she's <laughs> endorsed by and a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Gang, um, gang, gang, she supports gang. the boycott and divest and sanctions movement and has called yeah. Israel an apartheid state. Gang, um, gang, 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 gang. <laughs> 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 the political gotta, gang, gang, shit. We gotta be careful. We gotta. I don't know if y'all want to talk about this question of Israel Palestine. We, we Why wouldn't about, we talk about? We it? can. It's, not, we it's can. not a controversial topic. Like those who want to be real with themselves will be real with themselves and will say. What well, we ain't gonna talk about it today. On. Yeah, okay, we'll not talk today. About it later. We'll talk about it later. But gang, 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 gang. <laughs> so Corey Bush. Wow. All right. Was there anybody else? Yes. You wanted to one. talk about Stacey Abrams. You the one to put on the list. Stacey Abrams. I okay, so shout out to Stacey Abrams. She's running for governor in my fucking state. Okay. This is time to Stacey Abrams also happens to be that fucking girl. I will literally single-handedly give her as, okay, Zemi's hating, but it's fine. I will literally say that she is the reason why Georgia turned purple. And that's on me. I'm going to say it. It's on me. I give her her props. Yes, we may not align all the way on policy positions. I don't expect us to. Anybody who was nominated by the Democratic Party and who has the Democratic Party tick off, I do not expect to be like super duper progressive. I will give you that. But I will say like Stacey Abrams is probably like one of the people who I can really see being put in a position that I think can actually get stuff done. So I'm with her. It's not because she's a black woman. It's because she put in that work and she deserves and if you, it. If you want to be with somebody because they're a black woman, so the fuck what? Mind We're you not know. doing identity Word. politics. Word. Because but what if we end up with Word. a Candace Owens? Ooh. Black people can play as much identity politics as we choose to. Like Issa Rae said, if we want to root for everybody black in I'm a certain given everybody. situation, then we get to root for black. everybody black. I'm not going okay, to sit here and act like every time I see a black person in a race, I'm not rooting for them because I am. Because... <laughs> You know, I am, but you know, if your politics are fucked up, That's I'm gonna tell you your politics are fucked up. I mean, yeah, not if you actually like Candace Owens, but if we want to root for a black moderate, or like that Shirley lady with a uh, you gun, know, Democrat, we can run we can for, the root for a black moderate Democrat if we want. Like, we could play identity. I mean, white people do it, everybody else does it. Gang, I mean, I'm not gonna call Stacey gang gang, but she cool. 
<laughs> we can learn we can a lot from Stacey eye. Abrams is all I will say. Yeah, she doing her thing. Well, y'all, this has been definitely one of my favorite episodes. I say that about all our episodes, but this has definitely been one of my very, very favorite ones. It was really nice to, yeah, I really liked getting to know y'all better from a political perspective and seeing like how y'all land with things and where y'all are vibing. I think, yeah, we definitely got to dig into this more. There's, There's just so much that we could only touch in the time that we have. So come back again for another episode, Ain't I Woman podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We've been talking about merch, B to me. I don't know. We might have. We were talking about AirPod Pro merch because I got a new AirPod case and we thought it would be really cute for us to put AIAW stuff on AirPod. No, I want us to put Loaded Coochie Police on it. I am feeling Loaded Coochie Police. Or ECB. I'm also feeling that. (laughs) I'm also feeling that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Stickers, maybe. To the girls with the loaded coochies, we see you. Wait, can you? Where did that come from again? Girl, I told you one time I was listening to one of the divested girls. She was talking about like regretting motherhood, as always. Um, She was like, you know, these young girls, they become moms because, you know, they run around with these loaded coochies. Don't even know what they doing with it. And I, <laughs> I said coochies. to myself, I said, not the loaded coochie police, not you police and a young girl, you know, the, the black girls. And then what is the coochie loaded with? You have to ask her. She just said they running around with these loaded coochies. And she said it more than once. And I said, girl, not you being the loaded coochie police. And that's how I came up with loaded coochie police. Like, you policing the girls loaded coochies. I said, uh-uh, sis. You was too old for this. You was, you was dipping and doing it in your days. You gonna let the young girls zip and do it too. You know, don't, don't be judgy. <laughs> LOL. Okay, well, thank y'all for joining us on this episode of the Ain't I Woman podcast. We will see y'all next time. Gang, 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 gang. gang, gang. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a whole ass. Leave the recording. Doing gang, gang. Zimmy, how did you know I was going to do that? <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> let me find how to leave. I don't know how I'll to leave. leave. My leave button went away. Y'all, it won't let me leave.